Wendy International, I'm Mike Dünnbier. This is the Alcohol Issues Podcast. It's uh, Saturday, September 12, 2020. Welcome to the second episode of the Alcohol Issues Podcast. This is our weekly conversation about latest alcohol issues in policy and science and new alcohol industry revelations. Every episode we are also bringing you an in-depth conversation about alcohol issues of global importance. So for this second episode we are following up on last week's conversation with Dag Rekwe, the Senior Technical Officer for Alcohol, Other Drugs and Addictive Behaviors at the World Health Organization. Today we are going more in depth on some of the most interesting points that Dag Rekwe talked about. This is a conversation that highlighted both how far global alcohol policy making has come since the 1980s and how much is still left to do. It's also a conversation that shed light on both challenges and opportunities to advance alcohol prevention and control in the coming years. So across these dimensions we have selected five highlights that stood out to us. To bring them to the forefront even more we decided to discuss them a bit more. If you have other alcohol issues that stand out to you from the talk with Dark Rekwe, please let us know and we will dive into those topics in future episodes. Here is the conversation again, now with our comments. Hello everyone, we are here with uh, Dark Rekwe, the Senior Technical Officer at the WHO Headquarters in Geneva. I'm working in the unit on uh, alcohol, drugs and addictive behaviors. Dark, thank you so much for taking time and talking with me today. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here with you, Mike, and with uh, Movendi. Thank you. And uh, of course, um, our topic today is um, the global burden of alcohol and um, uh, solutions and uh, Uh, things that we that you see can be done have not been done. So we have uh, uh, lots of questions prepared, but I wanted to start by asking you, what does it mean that you work in the unit on alcohol, drugs and addictive behaviors and that you are the uh, senior tech technical officer? Could you give us uh, some insights, please? Yeah, thank you very much, Mike. Uh, uh, as you know, the World Health Organization is body in the UN system, which is responsible for directing and coordinating health. Uh, and we work with 194 member states um, across six regions of the world uh, and from more than 150 offices around the world. Uh, so I think it's important to keep in mind what WHOE is. Uh, and uh, we work towards a world in which all people can attain the highest possible standard of health and well-being. So that's the way, uh, that's our ultimate goal. And uh, the way we are doing it is Through some core functions, we provide leadership on matters critical to health and we shape the research agenda. Uh, we are setting norms and standards and promote, not the least, to promote and monitor and implementation. And we also uh, develop and articulate ethical and evidence-based policy options in, and we provide technical support. And finally, we monitor the health situation and report on the health situation around the world. Uh, so I think that is the perspective uh, when you ask me what I, I do. Uh, uh, and we have this slogan that we promote health, we keep the world safe, and we serve the vulnerable. Uh, and I think it's also important to, some of you probably know the long history of uh, WHO, and clearly in the last years there's been a clear shift in the organization uh, 
towards more focus on so-called non-communicable diseases and conditions, uh, heart diseases, diabetes, uh, cancer, uh, but also injuries and violence, um, uh, and, uh, and also a much more focus on the social and commercial determinants of health. And finally, we also are shifting the organization to have much more impact directly at country level. Uh, and it's interesting because uh, and, uh, the, um, it is a dual track because on the one side, we have more focus on non-communicable diseases, but on the other hand, when we want to have more impact at country level and we've had uh, big health emergencies like uh, uh, H1N1, uh, Ebola, and not the least to mention COVID-19, it is a kind also more focus on communicable diseases. Uh, but at the same time, it's a clearly a much more focused approach now to look at both non-communicable diseases and communicable diseases and not being uh, focusing uh, on only one of them, but working in tandem uh, towards uh, reducing the health burden. And I am then a senior technical officer in the unit on alcohol, drugs, and addictive behaviors. That means that our unit are working both on issues related to alcohol, uh, but also to psychoactive drugs, uh, especially on the treatment side, uh, because we have UNODC, who is working much more on the control side. Uh, and then uh, a new uh, issue that has emerged uh, in the last years is addictive behaviors like gambling and gaming which is now, uh, and especially gaming, is considerably concerned around the world uh, with an increasing use of gaming, online gaming. And, and we try also to work with those issues, both from a prevention side and from a, a, a treatment side. And, 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 and my main work as a senior technical officer is first and foremost to implement the global strategy to reduce the harmful use of alcohol by uh, by uh, providing support to countries by uh, um, developing and uh, together with colleagues evidence-based measures and promote them but also to develop uh, uh, we have a publication every three four years which we call the global status report on alcohol and health which really outlines the alcohol consumption the health consequences and the policy responses in the world so that is mainly uh, what i'm working on this is a quite impressive list um, of things that uh, you are doing and that you in WHO are uh, working with. I wanted to ask, um, jokingly, what are you doing uh, in the afternoon? And I think these issues, Doug, that you are uh, mentioning here, the psychoactive drugs, uh, the addictive behaviors, uh, that is also part of your work, um, that would be interesting to discuss in, in another podcast as well, because we are dealing with those issues too. But um, I think you have already touched upon the things that we want to focus on uh, today, the leadership of WHO and the norm setting work of WHO when it comes to um, addressing the global alcohol burden. And so you have mentioned um, uh, the focus on implementing the uh, global alcohol strategy and also the status reports. So I'm really um, interested in getting into this. And so uh, the first question would be then, Now it's 2020, Doug, and that means it's uh, 10 years since the adoption of the global alcohol strategy that you've already mentioned. So if you uh, could uh, take a look back, what did it mean for alcohol policy development that the global alcohol strategy was adopted 10 years ago? What did it mean for member states and for the World Health Organization? Um, and what's the significance uh, of the global alcohol strategy? 
thank you very much, Mike. Uh, of course, it's always difficult to evaluate the impact of an uh, instrument that is uh, non-binding and, and, and so-called soft and doesn't come with hard-cut, clear recommendations in itself. And I think the best way to start uh, discussing the impact of the global strategy is to first look at what happened before the global strategy and what was the status uh, of alcohol in the World Health Organization and in the world before the global strategy. And uh, it was very interesting because uh, uh, the World Health Report in 2002, at that time, ranked alcohol uh, as the fifth leading risk factor in the world. Uh, uh, for diseases and disabilities. And, and then people start, started asking, so if WHO ranks alcohol as the fifth leading risk factor, what is de facto WHO doing? And uh, it was a very difficult question to answer on one hand, but it was easy because not much happened, unfortunately. It was only in the European region, which had had a concerted action since 1985, because in 1985 was the last time that alcohol was uh, on the agenda of the governing bodies of WHO. So since 1985, alcohol had never directly been discussed in the governing bodies, that is among our member states in the leading health agency in the world. So uh, that means that uh, uh, nothing had happened in almost 20 years uh, concerted. So then some countries picked up and said, we need to start doing something. And they started building up a momentum and got alcohol on the governing bodies in 2005. Uh, it, but it was a big battle. The, the person, the chairman of the so-called executive board in WHO at that time, in the worst moment, said that alcohol is really a tricky liquid because it was so difficult to unite the world representatives in one direction on alcohol because you had everything from a total ban countries uh, to countries who were huge uh, producers themselves. Uh, and uh, so this was a huge, huge spread in opinions. And you had also the historical uh, fact of alcohol that it's not only about health, it's very much linked uh, um, uh, to religion, it's, it's linked to, to other issues that are not directly health related. And so, there, and so there are many, many difficulties around alcohol. But the world were able to unite on a resolution, uh, but still very little happened. And in fact, from the period of 2005 to 2010, when the alcohol strategy was endorsed, it was a big effort to try to unite the world in one direction. So I think the global strategy in itself the fact that we, you, were, you were able to unite the world, all the 193 at that time member states, that this is the direction we should go as a world uh, to reduce alcohol-related harm. That was the biggest impact. So, in fact, the biggest impact happened by endorsing the global strategy. And we shouldn't forget that, that it was acknowledged that alcohol was a huge uh, problem uh, for, for health and well-being in the world. It was a huge problem, not only for the drinker, but for other people than the drinker. And something much more concerted needed to happen. So, uh, so that is my first evaluation of the strategy. It itself was a huge success that it was able to unite. Then what happened after the global strategy? I think on the, on the global level, uh, if we, we keep that, we had the so-called NCD track and alcohol became fully integrated in, in the work to reduce non-communicable diseases. And alcohol also became uh, integrated in one of the health targets in the sustainable development goals together with uh, uh, psychoactive drugs. So, 
so clearly at the global level, there had been a much higher awareness uh, since pre-global strategy period uh, on alcohol. So, so no doubt that it has had an impact at the global environment, the global health uh, governance. Uh, alcohol is now present in all these questions. It's difficult to avoid alcohol when we are discussing crucial health issues in the world. So, so that has clearly, and whether it's the global strategy itself or all the mobilization, we don't know, but at least now it's difficult to avoid alcohol. Before the alcohol strategy came, it was easy or much more easy to avoid discussing alcohol when you discussed issues where alcohol was clearly part of. So I think that is the hugest success, the biggest success of the global strategy. Then is the question, so what has it mattered on the ground? What has it mattered for people's lives? Have it made any change? And I think there it's much more difficult to estimate the, the, the effect of the strategy itself. And I think it's still a continuous work. Uh, and it is happening things uh, globally. I think the COVID has, of course, changed the environment completely. But, but we see that many countries are struggling, are wanting to do something. But there are hindrances, there are bottlenecks, there are uh, instant, uh, to implement the most effective strategies. So, so I think it's a mixed picture when it comes to measuring the success of the global strategy. But, but if you look at the period before the strategy, I think it has been a fairly a big success. So Doug highlighted two major advancements for global alcohol prevention and control. First, the NCDs tracks and also the SDGs tracks and how they've both helped to improve the global governance of alcohol. I'll get back to the SDGs track later on. But in this context of assessing the decade of the WHO global alcohol strategy, the NCDs track matters greatly. Alcohol's inclusion in the 2013 NCD's Global Action Plan and the voluntary commitment that our governments made to reduce per capita alcohol use by 10% until 2025 meant another major improvement for alcohol policy making. And this shows that the adoption of the Global Alcohol Strategy established international standards and so it helped ensure that alcohol would be part of the NCD's agenda going forward. This also shows that once something is agreed among countries, it's difficult to ignore it um, for future deliberations. The NCD's track then since 2013 meant that we today are in a position to talk about the so-called alcohol policy best buys, a set of policies that is increasingly becoming a cornerstone of the response to prevent and reduce non-communicable diseases. Simply put, alcohol policy solutions moved closer to tobacco control and thus has received increasing attention. But they have also shown the failure of the global alcohol strategy. So, just a number of uh, facts Most countries, particularly low- and middle-income countries, have not implemented a comprehensive set of alcohol policies in the last 10 years. No low-income country has reported increasing the resources for implementing alcohol policy since the WHO Global Alcohol Strategy was adopted 10 years ago. In addition, many countries are failing to implement the best buys, with low- and middle-income countries more likely to have weaker policies. And this, of course, matters because low- and middle-income countries bear a disproportionately higher burden of alcohol harm. So the first 
Best Buy is regulating the availability of alcohol. And analysis shows that although physical access to alcohol is proved to reduce alcohol-related harms, less than one-third of countries have regulations on outlet density or days of alcohol sales. Some countries, mainly low- and middle-income countries in Africa, still have no legal minimum purchase age for alcohol at all. The second best buy in alcohol policy is regulating alcohol marketing or banning alcohol advertising, promotions and sponsorship. And analysis shows that most countries have some restrictions on alcohol advertising, but marketing restrictions on the internet and social media are lagging behind technological innovations and e-commerce, including rapidly developing new delivery systems. That means that most countries that reported no restrictions across all media types were located in the African and American regions. And the third alcohol policy best buys is regulating the alcohol price. Increasing the price of alcohol is the single most effective strategy to reduce and prevent alcohol-related harm. Although 95% of reporting countries implement alcohol excise taxes, few actually use these taxes as a public health policy to reduce consumption and related harm. And less than half of those countries use price strategies such as adjusting taxes to keep up with inflation and income levels. So this really shows that the last 10 years have not gone well in actually implementing the best buys. And this comes at a great loss for the countries themselves and the affected communities and people. Because we also know that the implementation of the three best buys would result in a return on investment of $9 for every $1 invested. So over 50 years, for example, a 20% global increase in alcohol taxes alone could avert 9 million premature deaths. So these facts show that while the global alcohol strategy has improved the global governance of alcohol by in ensuring that alcohol would be included in the response to the non-communicable disease burden globally, it has failed to facilitate better implementation, more systematic implementation of the alcohol policy best buys. And this is a big challenge um, for the years to come to accelerate action on these highly evidence-based, highly effective policy solutions. And I think it's an important point that you are making that um, the strategy united the countries. Um, I think it's quite remarkable to hear that since 1985, um, alcohol with the burden it causes globally has not been on the agenda of the uh, governing bodies of the World Health Organization. So I can, I can clearly see that this is a big achievement then. As uh, you said, it's a tricky fluid, it's a tricky substance. And I just wanted to highlight that you said that the global alcohol strategy um, was instrumental in ensuring that alcohol is now also included in the sustainable development goals and before that in the NCD's global action plan. 
And so you have mentioned already this, uh, the burden of alcohol, um, alcohol's harm to others, alcohol's health harm uh, that many regions and many countries are struggling with. So I wanted to ask you, Doug, um, based on what you look at the global status report that you're working with, um, what is it that you see in terms of uh, harm? What is the alcohol burden? Well, uh, it's it's a complex burden, and and I think we have to start with the basics. And some people don't like to hear this, but alcohol is a toxic substance. It's a psychoactive substance, and it's a substance with dependence-producing propensities. Uh, and these three elements, in fact, makes alcohol stand out from, uh, from many of the other psychoactive substances because alcohol scores high on the toxicity on the circulative component and on the dependence producing component of it. So, so that's why alcohol is it's an extremely important issue to look at as a psychoactive substance. Uh, and not only look at the toxicity or the intoxication or the dependence, we look at all three together and see how they, how they together produce the, the huge burden from alcohol. And not only for the body itself, for cancers, for cardiovascular diseases, uh, for the liver and digestive uh, system, uh, but also, in fact, uh, more and more which uh, research has shown the link between alcohol and communicable diseases, like especially TB, but also HIV-AIDS, so, though it's a little bit more complex. Uh, uh, and finally, not to mention all the social consequences of alcohol consumption, both to the drinker and especially to the people around the drinker. So this ma makes alcohol a very, very uh, important uh, factor, risk factor to look at from a broad perspective, not from a single perspective. And that is easy, easy to forget in all the discussions around alcohol. And, and, and also the fact that it seems to be that people can drink alcohol uh, in fairly small drowses with not any specific impact at that individual session or in a life course if you keep it to a very low level. Uh, so clearly it has to do with uh, both uh, the context, the frequency and the amount. Huh? Uh, so that is also another factor here and which makes it difficult because people sometimes can't identify themselves as a drinker with the problem because they are not the problem drinker. <laughs> Though we have the historical uh, saying that uh, a person with alcohol problems is a person who drinks more than his doctor and the relativity of having problems and alcohol problems. So, so that, that is, of course, an aspect which makes it very, very different. And of course, the issue around illicit and surrogate alcohol, which sometimes is used as a scapegoat for, for, for putting in place evidence-based measures, but, but also, in fact, has a... a, 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 a a value in itself to look at because it creates a lot of problems, both the surrogate alcohol and the illegal alcohol. So, so, so it's a duality again there, and uh, and, uh, I, I, and that is and so and finally, I think the issue with uh, that having to address both the short term and the long term effects of alcohol, we need to firmly establish that there's not possible to develop a a threshold for low low risk drinking. You can do low risk drinking with low risks, but we can't say that there is anything like safe drinking or safe drinking environments or 
uh, and saying using anything that try to avoid or diminish or uh, or or uh, um, neglect the risk by drinking itself. And when you sum up everything and you look at it all, uh, alcohol is consumption is uh, responsible for almost uh, around three million deaths each year glo uh, globally, uh, and it's accounts for around 5.1% 5, 5 of the disease burden. So it's a huge risk factor for, for, for the global burden of disease. And it's linked to my, so many conditions, uh, more than 200 uh, codes in ICD-10 uh, or now ICD-11 is detrimentally linked to, to, to alcohol consumption. A few codes is linked to uh, beneficial effects. Of alcohol and it's the discrepancy also in the focus on on the uh, on the beneficial effects versus the detrimental effects is also uh, very illustrative of this uh, uh, incredible duality that we are struggling with when it comes to alcohol. I don't think any other risk factor or any other um, issue it has detrimental consequences for health would get blown off some beneficial effects in the way that alcohol is doing. And for us who works with this, it's always uh, amazing and almost incredible to see that the health professionals, my colleagues, are blowing up the beneficial effects to proportions which are not defendable in a public health view. And that, I must say, is really, really making me very, very sad and irritated. And I need just to express that. As public health people, we should really look at the the detrimental effects. That's our obligation. That is what we are here for. And that is what we need to work on, not blowing up the beneficial or potential beneficial effects out of proportions and for our own satisfaction or for someone else's satisfaction. That is really, really something that annoys me. Now I've said that. Um, so uh, I think I'll stop there, but we need to do something with this huge health risk. And on uh, on this point that uh, you are talking about this long list of um, health conditions that alcohol is related to, um, I think you mentioned cancer and cardiovascular disease. I think those two stand out, but you also mentioned tuberculosis and HIV AIDS. And we are right now in a global pandemic. Uh, I think uh, COVID-19 is a res respiratory disease. Um, as well. So I think you mentioned a number of interesting points and I wanted to ask you um, in a few years ago, the British Medical Journal, uh, they published an editorial um, under the headline saying um, that the health benefits or the evidence for the health benefits of alcohol um, is evaporating. Uh, so a few years later, you mentioned now this uh, that there are myths about alcohol's uh, uh, positive effects for the heart and uh, that this is uh, crowding out the awareness that alcohol causes cancer. Could you just update uh, us, please? Where are we in terms of uh, the, the key facts that people should know about um, um, in terms of alcohol harm and that people should know uh, to put into context uh, the myths about uh, alcohol's health benefits? Well, I think, again, back to the fact that uh, we have to start with, uh, with the core. And the core is that alcohol is toxic. It is psychoactive and it is, has dependence-producing propensities. 
And then, of course, there are huge differences between different individuals. So the so-called risk curve uh, may differ hugely, not only from person to person, but also from gender and age and, and, and all these things. So, so that is the starting point. And then evidence is accumulating uh, on more and more on the detrimental effects. And especially, of course, the cancer risks are something which is now firmly established by the uh, IAC, the International Agency for Cancer Research. Um, and several cancer types are directly, uh, uh, alcohol is directly causal for several cancer types. And all the other uh, diseases uh, on the body that we know about, uh, it's firmly established. When it comes to the health benefits, I think uh, this is a battle that uh, we neither can win nor we can lose. I think it's a wrong perspective in itself. It's an interesting perspective, so I think it deserves its research. Uh, but then we have everything about the knowledge translation. And knowledge translation is a kind of key word. So what do we do with the knowledge that we have about something? And I think it's not about what we know about uh, the beneficial effects, because I think that that will continue. There will become new research, which will then highlight the beneficial effects. And perhaps even for more diseases, they will try to find and they will find that uh, there's plausible links, there are potential links, and there are stronger evidence about links, etc., etc. So this is a battle that will continue. So we cannot stop it. We can't stop knowledge uh, research, knowledge search, and search for what are uh, effects of things. So I think we should more shift our focus to the knowledge translation. So what is happening with the knowledge we have about the potential health benefits? And I think there, that is where we have to put in the emphasis and we have to focus on, on the context. We have to focus on the entirety of alcohol as a risk factor, not, uh, not uh, reduce it to single diseases or single uh, consequences, but keep in mind the overall impact and especially on uh, the equity element of these issues. And, uh, uh, so, so, so that is why I think uh, we need to shift the focus and not try to win the battle whether there are health benefits or not. I think we need to put it in context and we need to translate the knowledge into the action that is needed and more. Um, so that, I think, is the future for us. In the beginning, you mentioned that um, in WHO you work with 194 member states in six regions um, across the world. and. Uh, to this point that you are making now that it's so important to address the entirety of alcohol as a health risk factor and an obstacle to development. I just wanted to ask you, do you have some key facts or some, some key issues that you highlight when you are uh, working with these countries um, that, that you think stand out well or explain the, the problem in, in a very clear way? Well, if I knew that, I would probably uh, it would have been an easy battle. But it, it, there is no simple, simple. There's not a panagra. There's no, there's no simple solutions. It's very difficult. It's there's so many. I think barriers uh, towards action, uh, which makes even compelling evidence uh, being uh, refuted uh, if there are uh, vicarious arguments behind. Uh, or conflicting interests uh, that don't want to implement the evidence-based measures. Uh, so that's why we have a difficult uh, 
uh, issue to to explain it to to governments to to explain uh, that this is something that we need to do uh, because we are only one factor in when a government is deciding and and I think uh, we need to more work on how can we together build a case uh, which makes it impossible for governments and for many governments it is impossible not to work with alcohol but for many more governments, it's very easy to avoid alcohol, to still push it under a carpet. So, so we have to find a strategy, and, and I don't, and we don't have the solution yet. It is a, probably there are two ways. One is to to do hardcore advocacy and and try to shout at governments, and the other is to then constantly build up the evidence base, the technical assistance, and the and the available tools. And, and just continue, uh, you know, working and working and working. Because also when you look at the history of alcohol consumption and uh, the problems associated with it and the policy responses, it's again this duality. Either it becomes a single issue and it's uh, very much ideologically driven uh, and to either do a complete ban or get it uh, eradicate alcohol, or then being completely succumbed by, by commercial and liberal, liberal trends and say that it's the individual's choice and we just need to uh, work with the individual's choice and, and, and but it should be possible for everyone to drink and then, then we just need to have that as a starting point. So that is the dilemma that uh, the world is so widely different and the issue is uh, at hand is so difficult and ideologically driven that we need again to come back to the public health base for alcohol consumption and alcohol issues and alcohol-related problems, which is difficult because you the ideologically part of alcohol uh, movement has been so important in, in putting in place evidence-based measures. So I think we shouldn't forget them or say that the ideological part of those that are really concerned uh, with alcohol should not be something we are stimulating. But at the same time, we need to be aware that governments have so many competing interests now and, and, and we need to find the right way and the right way for governments to, to work to reduce alcohol consumption and alcohol-related harm. So, so again, there's no simple solution. We just have to continue on the path that we are doing and, and we won't solve the problem in the short term or the long term, but we can have considerable achievements if, if we find the right way and we work together. When you analyze the situation with the implementation of the global alcohol strategy, you talked about um, some of the uh, big improvements that have happened uh, both in terms of the momentum of the strategy that, and the unification of the uh, countries around the world. But you also mentioned that in the communities, the work in the last 10 years on alcohol prevention and control maybe has not had the impact um, that uh, everybody would have wished for when the strategy was adopted in 2010. Now you have also mentioned barriers to alcohol policy implementation and I think the different um, aspects of it that some countries really want to lead on alcohol uh, control and other countries um, are uh, much more cautious about this. And so I just wanted to ask you, Doug, can you see that the interest is increasing for, from countries that are reaching out to WHO? And can you also see success stories in terms of implementing the alcohol policy best buys and the global alcohol strategy? From my perspective and my standpoint, we, we really see that many more countries now work and try to work or try to do something uh, to reduce alcohol-related harm. 
globally and in the country and also at the municipal level. We shouldn't forget all the different levels. Huh? Uh, the municipalities have many competences in, in many countries when it comes to alcohol uh, consumption and alcohol-related harm, often through licensing systems or, or uh, social services or treatment systems or, uh, and even uh, on marketing. Uh, so we shouldn't forget the city level, the local level, and the, of course in federal states, the regional level, and then uh, and the country level itself. Um, one of the main problems we have in reducing alcohol-related harm is that those measures that really have an impact, those measures that really uh, change the situation in the country, is very often outside of the control of the health sector, uh, and it links directly into uh, commercial interests, and and uh, and uh, and the revenues of governments and it is taxation it is uh, reducing the availability the physical availability of alcohol it's reducing marketing and it's to work with road safety and those issues are often almost all in all countries outside of the health sector itself and in, the, in addition we have good evidence for so-called screening and brief intervention that is to discover problem drinking at an early stage and coming in and do some short uh, short interventions to try to change the, the, the drinking at, uh, for the person. Uh, so I think that's the starting point is that the health sector has to, is the key advocate for issues that are outside of the health sector and already there, we have some problems. Uh, uh, but, but there are ways around it and especially the taxation. <laughs> we have seen now in COVID that suddenly taxation is becoming a we have got a lot of new fans for alcohol taxation because alcohol taxation by far is probably the, the excise tax that creates the most revenues for countries and, and the revenues are needed in this phase that we are in now. Uh, but just coming shortly back to successes, yes, we have had many, many successes at, at even at city level and, and up to, to national level. And in, in different regions, there have been movements in regions. So. Here, Dark highlighted the so-called Safer Technical Package, a policy blueprint of the most impactful, cost-effective and proven alcohol policy solutions. Safer is an acronym that comprises action on five key areas the Dark all listed. Strengthen restrictions on alcohol availability. Advance and enforce countermeasures against driving under the influence of alcohol. Facilitate access to screening, brief interventions and treatment. Enforce bans or comprehensive restrictions on alcohol advertising, sponsorship and promotion. And raise prices on alcohol through excise taxes and pricing policies. So the first letters of each of these Five interventions are S-A-F-E-R, SAFER. And SAFER is the WHO-led initiative that Movendi International is a founding civil society partner of with the alcohol policy blueprint as its centerpiece that aims to support countries in reaching the global target of reducing per capita alcohol use by 10% until 2030. And I think it's in this context of the SAFER initiative that more and more countries are requesting technical support from WHO to implement these alcohol policy solutions and to find a way that is comprehensive and sustainable to reduce their massive alcohol burden. 
in this context, it's important also, I think, to highlight Doug's point about the potential of especially alcohol taxation. We see clear evidence now that shows that that revenues from excise tax, from alcohol company tax, from licensing fees and uh, other alcohol taxes could help cover and even meet the costs of a comprehensive alcohol control program. The prevention and treatment of disorders caused by alcohol as well as contributing to the funding of other health and development priorities. Imagine that a 20% increase in the price of alcohol through higher taxes could accumulate as much as $9 trillion in increased revenues globally over the next 50 years. In fact, alcohol taxation is a triple win measure. It helps reduce and prevent alcohol harm. It helps raise government revenue for investment in health promotion. And it helps achieve larger development goals. And as alcohol policy analysis and evaluation, including alcohol taxation, has been more firmly established within the wider public health community now, more and more science is being produced that examines the impact and the potential of the alcohol policy solutions, especially alcohol taxation, that increasingly is understood as a smart investment. I think it's difficult when we talk about the success story not to talk about Russia and, and what has happened in Russia the last uh, 25 years. And, and of course, it cannot be directly linked only to the global strategy, but it shows what happens in a country when the problems just becomes too big. Yeah? Because Russia historically is of the heaviest drinking countries in the world. Yeah? But now they stand out as an example of how a long-term strategy using very stringent policy reforms uh, can reverse devastating uh, effects on alcohol. Because in the early 1990s, uh, alcohol consumption was extremely high. And after the dissolvement of the Soviet Union and the liberalization of markets, alcohol consumption really skyrocketed. I, I think they had around 20 liters of per capita alcohol consumption in, in around the turn of the, the century. And, and that by far the highest in the world, perhaps appeared uh, by a couple of countries. Half of all deaths in working age men uh, was, uh, was almost uh, was linked to uh, drinking uh, and, uh, and, all, and so many consequences for the society. Uh, so they had to do something. And from 2005, they really started concerted efforts, working with market jurisdictions, uh, sales and taxation. And, uh, and as a result, uh, in Russia, with this concerted focus on the evidence-based measures, consumption dropped. Uh, now I think it's around 11, 12, uh, 12 liters, depending, 13, depending on how much we, what we count <laughs> and how we count it. But there's a considerable drop. And also not only a considerable drop in alcohol consumption, but a drop in alcohol-related mortality and morbidity, injuries, psychosis, uh, need for treatment, etc., etc. And this success has been achieved by measures targeting price, availability, and marketing of alcohol, and drink-driving measures. And so, so, so of course, Russia is st still not, uh, they're far from teetotal. They have a really bad drinking culture. But I think the example of Russia and the measures they've implemented, especially the last 10 years, really shows that it is possible if you have concerted uh, and committed action and uh, uh, from highest level of government 
and also that this is done uh, through the governmental systems. So, so, so it shows, I think the Russia case shows that it is possible, but we need commitment, we need strong commitment in all levels. Of course, Russia as a top-down society is more easy to get streamlined uh, than other countries. So I think uh, the lesson we really need to learn is that yes, everyone at all levels need to contribute and commit and do something if you want to achieve something in a society. Dark talks about the success story of Russia with regards to their long-term commitment, political leadership and sustained effort to tackle their alcohol burden comprehensively with evidence-based solutions and in a concerted approach. The results are very impressive and the lessons that can be learned are instructive for other countries. There are also more countries from different parts of the world and with different alcohol norms and different sets of alcohol issues that have used the momentum since the adoption of the global alcohol strategy to advance their own alcohol prevention and control measures. I think perhaps the event that best illustrates this was a side event organized by Movendi International with the World Health Organization and partnering countries during the UN General Assembly in New York in 2018 on the margins of the third high-level meeting on NCDs. The President of Sri Lanka attended the event and numerous ministers and high-level policymakers in respective countries joined us. They spoke to the difficulties of implementing the global alcohol strategy and they explained the successes they had seen since they adopted evidence-based alcohol policy solutions. We'll add a link to the video from the event in the show notes. So, in Europe, for example, there are countries such as Estonia, Lithuania, Scotland and recently Ireland who have implemented comprehensive alcohol policy solutions. In Africa, countries such as Kenya, Uganda and Botswana have led the way by implementing evidence-based alcohol laws. And in Asia, Thailand, Sri Lanka and the Philippines are other examples of country success stories where alcohol policy implementation has acted as catalyst for development. Now we have discussed also success stories and I think you have highlighted a number of important lessons that you have uh, learned from Russia and, and other countries. And in this context, I wanted to ask uh, one more It's 2020 uh, question. So... Of course, it's 2020 now, and we are already five years into the uh, Agenda 2030 and the Sustainable Development Goals. We see some countries that improve um, on their development, like you mentioned, Russia. And you mentioned earlier that alcohol is, is included in the um, Agenda 2030. So I wanted to ask, what do we know about the connection between alcohol and development, alcohol and the SDGs more broadly. And uh, is WHO together with countries doing anything in particular to address SDGs that are affected by alcohol and to promote development through the alcohol policy solutions? Yeah, uh, thank you for the question. Of course, the SDGs and the SDG agenda is a huge agenda. It inflects in all levels of society, horizontally and And, and vertically, vertically, if you want to use those expressions. And I think the same goes for alcohol. Uh, in fact, alcohol, uh, when you look horizontally and vertically, uh, if you look vertically on the health goal, it inflicts on all the 
basically almost all the uh, health targets uh, in a way or another, some more than others, uh, especially NCDs and injuries, but also communicable diseases and maternal health. And there's so many uh, areas where alcohol uh, affects uh, the target. But also horizontally to all the 17 goals, alcohol is in one way or another, to lesser or bigger degree, uh, involved in all the 17. And some of them we can say, well, we need to really <laughs> work hard to make it an important part of the goal. And others, it's evident and over-evident. And I think, especially when it comes to uh, inequities, uh, I think that is, uh, it's a missing link for the world. Many, many are now focusing on inequities and many are afraid of inequities because after COVID-19, inequities have really even skyrocketed even more. But inequities is, is, is a key issue when it comes to alcohol because, again, because people who are fairly wealthy, healthy, in a good context, can drink alcohol without any clear, obvious, immediate or long-term negative consequences. And many cannot do that. And that is driven by inequities. So, so I think this issue, and that is an old argument in alcohol an alcohol-related harm. That is the solidarity, the solid solidarity. So, so I think if, uh, in the sustainable development goals, I think especially uh, because it's so easy to say that you are not part of the problem when you are a drinker. Nobody wants to be part of the problem. So many drinkers don't perceive themselves as part of the problem, even though they are so. I think to be lifting up the issue that alcohol affects inequities and affects people's uh, possibilities to grow and mature and rise up in society, uh, not only at the, only individuals, but also cultures. I think that is one of the main aspects with the sustainable development goals and highlight the, the real link between alcohol in, in, and inequity. Here is where I thought it would be good to come back to the SDGs track that Doug mentioned in the beginning of our conversation and now elaborates on how exactly alcohol is an obstacle to development. And I thought there is a dimension of alcohol harm that is still often forgotten or overlooked that I would like to highlight now. And that is the dimension of harm that affects others than the alcohol users that fuels social injustice and inequities and that undermines human potential and human thriving. Movendi International has made the analysis and can show that 14 of 17 SDGs are adversely affected by alcohol and that all dimensions of development are negatively affected by alcohol. What is still underestimated is the extent to which alcohol erodes human capital and undermines human potential across the life course. So Consider, for example, children, adolescents and youth who bear a disproportionate burden of alcohol harm. And the pathways can be many. For example, parents have an immense influence over their children's behavior during adolescence and on their children's well-being throughout the life course. Adolescents growing up with parents who have alcohol use problems are, for example, much more likely to experience mental health problems, relationship problems financial problems, family problems and are much more likely to imitate risky behaviors later on in life. This is especially true in poorer communities and in poorer families that uh, are affected by alcohol use disorder and in low and middle income countries in general where alcohol often tends to crowd out 
other more productive household spending, for example, on education, healthcare, and healthy food, and thereby seriously eroding human potential. Alcohol use has also proven to be linked with a number of negative education-related consequences, including poor school engagement and performance and school dropout. There is a strong evidence of causation, at least from frequent alcohol use, to adverse health, social and educational outcomes. So we know that alcohol clearly fuels all these risk factors for human capital, contributing to parental roles being neglected and abandoned, scarce resources being wasted on alcohol instead of healthy food, leisure time activities and school material, resulting health issues further exacerbate the dire situation fueling the vicious cycle and norms and conditions for academic performance are undermined and eroded. All this adds up to alcohol consumption causing death and disability relatively early in life in the age group 20 to 39 years, for example, approximately 13% of all deaths are alcohol-related. Alcohol also affects the human capital and the potential of women and girls, um, where alcohol fuels gender inequality, perpetuates harmful stereotypes and harmful norms about women and girls, and where alcohol is a major risk factor for violence against women all adding to substantial loss of human potential due to alcohol-fueled exclusion and oppression of women and girls. Uh, uh, I think also uh, one that we haven't really focused too much on in, in, a, in a way is the goal 17. And I think we need to find the goal 17 and work with goal 17 in the right way to find the right frame. And that is about partnerships to achieve the goal. Because yes, everyone has not only a right, but an obligation to participate to reduce alcohol-related harm in the world. And that's why partnerships are so, so important. But at the same time, Goal 17 has created a platform for commercial interests to be part of the solution only and to avoid being seen as part of the problem. And I think we need really to work with Goal 17 to find the right way for how uh, uh, especially commercial invested interests can com commit and contribute, but at the same time not escaping the, the, the light, not escaping that they are also part of the problem, and not escaping the fact that the most cost-effective intervention will hurt the businesses. So, so I think Gold 17 is a key issue for, for success when it comes to alcohol and for uh, the sustainable development goals in that regard. Uh, and, and, and of course, all the other goals. Uh, and, and again, especially I would highlight because we often forget it, and that is Goal 16, peace and justice and strong institutions. And, and again, the links between violence and especially intimate partnership violence and violence on the streets and and, and, and disorder. Uh, and in fact, also now through COVID-19, we have seen this now, uh, where many youth are not, are, are just disregarding all the uh, uh, ordinances and regulations because they want to have the right to party. And then they go partying and then they get uh, infected and they're asymptomatic and they go home. Uh, perhaps they then, their parents and even their grandparents get sick. 
or at least this is a potential way. Uh, we don't have enough evidence, but we see that many countries are now starting to be afraid of that because young people, in, in a way, know, again, this low risk, that they are not at the highest risk, so they don't care and they don't bother, so they don't... And, but then what they do have consequences for others. And I think that is the point, uh, that nobody drinks in isolation. You are not by yourself in your drinking, but your drinking has consequences or might have consequences for others. You don't need to become abstinent, but you need to think about that alcohol is a social problem also, and the solutions is at the social level. Yeah, and I think um, with these points that you highlight now, um, I have one final question to hopefully put this all together, because there are so many uh, really interesting uh, dimensions and aspects that you have highlighted. So I think it's very good to discuss the different aspects of alcohol harm that go beyond uh, the health dimension. As you have mentioned, um, the, the different SDGs, inequities, um, violence, uh, the role of the alcohol industry in uh, fueling alcohol harm and uh, not really needing to take responsibility for uh, that um, as currently. And you have also talked um, a number of times during our conversation about the current global pandemic, the coronavirus crisis. So I wanted to ask you, going back also to this point that you made, that there are these uh, solidarity dimensions, uh, social justice issues about alcohol. From your perspective and considering that we are now living um, in times of COVID-19, um, we have done so for almost half a year. What are the issues that uh, WHO is most concerned about uh, when it comes to the pandemic and alcohol harm and, and alcohol policy? Well, it's a very difficult question because alcohol has not been in the forefront uh, in the issues around the, how to uh, contain the, 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 the virus. And uh, there's a reason for that, because we have not good enough evidence on the local lockdowns and, and the bans that have been introduced in many countries. We have a lot of indicative evidence. But we are really, we, have, we could not come with good evidence-based recommendations to countries and especially to municipalities in a situation where, where on the one hand, alcohol clearly was part of an integrated part of the economy and banning alcohol would hurt the economy. On the other hand, we knew also that they clearly there were increased risks by continuing having alcohol present, especially in a partying culture environment. Uh, but at the same time, Uh, we need uh, to develop the evidence base for the direct link between an indirect link between alcohol and COVID-19 spread. So, so that is why uh, it has been difficult. We, we have given some advice and general advice, but at the same time, the countries themselves have, uh, have a wide uh, range of approaches from declaring alcohol as an essential good to introduce a complete local ban or national ban on alcohol consumption. So I think it's it's still difficult, uh, and we are still in the early stages. But clearly, uh, and this is a huge natural experiment now, which will uh, increase the evidence base considerably if we do concerted the research of this huge natural ex experiment. So I think, but that clearly it will change the the the, cons the the context of alcohol discussions. My final final com uh, comment is that. Our main challenge uh, will be to work on, 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 on our cognitive dissonance uh, around alcohol. Not only uh, those that are drinkers, but also non-drinkers. Uh, 
and and uh, and together find out how we can deal with the cognitive dissonance so we end up on the right side and when i talk about cognitive dissonance uh, this is that people always are you know people are not either this or that it's always a, a a stream of values, perspectives, ideas inside every person. And sometimes uh, there are contradictory beliefs and ideas and perspectives inside a person. <laughs> and very often uh, when we come into this cognitive dissonance, we look for escape because we, we get stressed when we have this. Yes, on the one hand, we see that alcohol is harmful, but on the other side, I drink and I think that it is really nice. And especially for those that are decision makers, it's, they have an obligation to solve this cognitive dissonance. And unfortunately, it has been far too easy to solve this dissonance for decision makers by, uh, by then just pushing alcohol under the carpet. And I think that is what we need to, to, we need to increase the leverage of the need to do something so that the need becomes so big that the, we end up on the right side of the dissonance of people's of societies and of of governments and of the United Nations. And I think on this point, um, there are many trends that I think go towards this point that you are making where uh, people are reflecting about uh, alcohol harm in the communities, uh, their own alcohol consumption. The point about cognitive dissonance is so important to create more health-promoting environments Our norms, attitudes and behaviors need to change and that is very difficult for alcohol with this pervasive alcohol marketing and this ingrained alcohol norm that conditions all of us to overestimate alcohol's benefits and to ignore alcohol's real effects. Cognitive dissonance is when thoughts, beliefs or attitudes are inconsistent, especially as they relate to behavioral decisions and attitude change. We all know, for example, that alcohol is harmful. Actually, alcohol harm is so pervasive that it's present in almost every family, workplace, football team or school class. And yet, we all hold beliefs about alcohol that glamorize it and lend it qualities that the products actually don't possess. So when it comes to alcohol, identities seem to be cast in stone. You are either party lover or party pooper, either extremist and moralist or open-minded, easygoing, fun-loving. And so the alcohol industry thrives on pitting people against each other, alcohol users versus alcohol abstainers. The alcohol industry benefits from such a polarization and the perception of a world where most people really like alcohol all the time, everywhere. But reality is different very different. Alcohol users and non-users sit in the same boat. Even alcohol users do not consume alcohol all the time and don't want to use alcohol all the time everywhere. Currently, people get coerced into consuming alcohol, reject their own preferences just to fit into a harmful norm. And so, the fact is that everybody actually benefits from changing that norm. Even alcohol users benefit from alcohol policy solutions being implemented. The healthcare system would be better for everyone, for example. And governments could invest resources in other priorities. So, going forward, in our upcoming Conversations of the Alcohol Issues podcast, 
we will explore these topics further to dive more into cognitive dissonance, to explore more the alcohol norm and to uh, look at solutions for this topic. We can see a, a youth generation that is increasingly choosing to uh, stay alcohol-free longer or to reduce their alcohol consumption a little bit. So there might changes be coming from uh, the community. And as you said, uh, WHO is getting requests from member states uh, for technical support. So hopefully we can build on those uh, trends then to address this global burden in, in the next 10 years. Yeah, I think it's unavoidable. And we are now working here in Geneva to develop a global action plan to reduce the harmful use of alcohol following the, the global strategy. Uh, and this is really the, I think this is the, the place now that we have to put in all our efforts to try to get a good action plan. I know many are disappointed. They want to have more legally binding instruments and more concerted actions. But before, because of all the complexities and issues I've mentioned, we have to keep in mind that there are 194 member states we need to unite around the common approach, at least for now, and then we can build up other approaches later. But I think to have an action plan as a fundament for putting it all together, putting together what has happened at the global level the ten, last 10 years with the NCD's action plan and political declaration in the UN, the SDGs, our new knowledge about the link between alcohol and communicable diseases, inequities, the link with uh, COVID-19, and the issue that, yes, you know, we need to continue finding the right way. And the action plan and uh, is really the place now that we need all good uh, hands on deck and work together to find a solution, get a good action plan and start working on it. Uh, that is the main, my main task uh, to help and facilitate that happening. Uh, but we here in the World Health Organization in Geneva, we cannot do it alone. We need help not the least from our regional offices, which are very autonomous here. We need help from the country level of WHO. We need help from governments uh, in the process of formulating the action plan and endorsing the action plan and implementing the action plan. We need the industry and commercial determinants to work also in the right place uh, so that they can do uh, what they can do at best to reduce and not uh, create more harm for the action plan. And but at least, not the least to mention, we need a strong and united so uh, civil society. And not only the so-called risk-oriented, uh, uh, risk-factor-oriented uh, civil society organizations working with alcohol, tobacco, road safety, etc. But we need horizontally across, and especially those that are working on diseases, on cardiovascular diseases, on cancer, we need those to really uh, put all the efforts together now to get a good action plan. It's a, it's a, it's a written instrument, it's words, but those words can come to a, into action if the words are good. And now we need good words and we need help to do that. Thank you very much, Doug. Thank you very much, Mike. It's been a real pleasure to be with you here today to talk about this very important issue. Thank you. Here are the alcohol issues you need to know about this week. In terms of alcohol policy news, there is a brand new policy brief about non-communicable diseases during and beyond the COVID-19 pandemic. We've analyzed it for you. 
the World Health Organization has released a new policy brief entitled Responding to Non-Communicable Diseases During and Beyond the COVID-19 Pandemic. The brand new document makes a strong case for action on alcohol, including alcohol taxation and mainstreaming alcohol policy considerations into multiple policy areas beyond health, such as labor, finance and economy. Noteworthy is the significant role that alcohol issues play in the Build Back Better efforts. It is argued that addressing NCDs must be an integral part of the immediate COVID-19 response and recovery at global, regional, national and subnational levels, as well as efforts to build back better to achieve the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. There are significant opportunities for integrating NCD prevention and control into measures to address COVID-19 and its impacts. From our perspective, two items in the policy brief really stand out. The first one is the focus on universal health coverage and the role that alcohol prevention and control should play there. The policy brief argues that advancing universal health coverage, ensuring that benefit packages include NCDs and that people with NCDs are not exposed to financial hardship when receiving care is essential to build back better. Countries should prioritize high-quality primary health care and population-wide prevention of NCDs. Both these dimensions matter for alcohol harm, as it's very important that people with alcohol use disorder receive services, receive care, and that overall alcohol harm, population level harm, is being addressed proactively as to ease the burden on the overall healthcare system. The second dimension of the policy brief is that it's arguing for strengthening NCDs related laws, policies and regulations and their enforcement to protect populations from NCDs and their risk factors during and beyond COVID-19. And here the best buy policy solutions are coming up again. Advancing taxes on products that are harmful to health, such as tobacco, alcohol, sugar-sweetened beverages and fossil fuels, regulating marketing of tobacco and alcohol and other harmful products, regulating online sales and home delivery of tobacco and alcohol products in order to enforce marketing laws and prevent sales to minors and intoxicated people, and importantly, restricting or prohibiting political interference and lobbying by representatives of the tobacco, alcohol and other harmful industries that profit from health-harming products and processes. This week's alcohol issues in science also address alcohol's role in the NCD's tsunami. A brand new study shows that alcohol plays a strong role in obesity. The study was conducted by Dr. Hye Jung Shin and colleagues from the National Medical Center in Seoul, South Korea. The study is actually so new that it has not yet been published, but it was presented at the recently held European and International Congress on Obesity. For the study, Dr. Shin and colleagues used health data on alcohol consumption from the Korean National Health Insurance System. 
for, for more than 14 million men and 12 million women aged 20 and older from South Korea over a two-year period. And what they found is that even after accounting for potentially confounding factors including age, physical exercise, smoking and income, the analysis showed that there is a strong association between alcohol consumption and obesity and there is a strong association between alcohol consumption and metabolic syndrome. And metabolic syndrome is a cluster of conditions including overweight, obesity, abnormal blood sugar, high blood pressure and abnormal blood fats that put people at higher risk of heart disease, heart attacks and stroke. The study also shows that the more alcohol that is consumed, the bigger the risk for obesity and metabolic syndrome. This week's alcohol issues concerning big alcohol highlights the issue of market concentration and domination. The story this week is about Heineken in Nigeria pushing for further beer market domination through increasing its power over Nigerian breweries. This development is illustrative for big alcohol strategies even during a global pandemic. Nigeria is among the most profitable beer markets for industry giant Heineken. Locked in relentless competition with other multinational alcohol corporations, the company is seeking to consolidate its grip of Nigeria. Through a new acquisition of additional equity stakes in Nigerian breweries, Heineken is pushing for further market domination in the country. The facts are this. Heineken is the second largest beer producer in the world and they are in fierce competition for emerging markets in Africa with number one beer giant AB InBev. Nigeria is the second most lucrative alcohol market for Heineken. That means Nigeria's alcohol market is of superior strategic importance for the Dutch beer maker. The new acquisition of additional equity stakes in Nigerian breweries has made Heineken the majority shareholder in Nigerian breweries now controlling more than 55%. These developments signal further problems. Market concentration fuels unethical business practices as alcohol producers like Heineken seek to outcompete and outperform each other and as they need to ensure returns on their big investments. This type of heavy investment will further foment the onslaught of corporate social responsibility campaigns, campaigns of lobbying and political interference, attempts to buy science and heavy alcohol marketing. And stories like this reveal the truth that so-called local brands don't actually exist as they largely belong to multinational alcohol giants pursuing profits for a few shareholders and business executives. To read more about this week's alcohol issues and to provide you with more details and sources, we have referenced all stories in the show notes so that you can easily find the latest Science Digest and all alcohol policy stories. We also link to the facts discussed in the comments during the conversation with Dag Rekwe.
The Alcohol Issues Podcast is made by Arin Pinho, Taraka Ranchigoda, Kristina Sperkova and Mike Dünbia. Our theme music is by LF Music. That's it for the Alcohol Issues Podcast. Thank you for listening. See you next week. Mm-hmm.